Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. Hope you all are having a great day, having a great summer. I don't know about you, was, summer was always like my favorite time as a kid. Was it yours as well? Yeah. Anyone remember those childhood summer times? You know, those days that were filled with, um, with being in the pool, maybe it was playing baseball or uh, riding your bike around, maybe it was just playing outside with friends or taking those family trips. One of my favorite things was is in the summertime, I would have these extended stays that I'd get to take with my dad, personal story. My parents split up when I was really young, but I got these opportunities in the summer to have extended longer stays with my dad. And it was so much fun because when he would go to work, we would go over to our cousin's house. And how many of you know, it's like when all the cousins come together, it gets a little wild. So God bless them for allowing us all to be there. But there would just be a house full of us. And it was always a blast. And I love that they lived out in the country and um, we'd have this opportunity, not just to have fun, but we would help them with some of the chores. Like one of my favorite ones was going and taking care of the horses. It was so much fun. But we had this one story that was crazy and that we still haze my cousin with to this day. You see, this particular summer, my cousin had to do summer school. Uh, she was making a transition from public school to homeschool. And in that uh, in-between time, she, had, she was doing a little bit of catch-up to get ready for the school year ahead. And the rules were that all of her schoolwork had to be done before she could go see the horses. And these horses were her pride enjoy. Now, this one day, uh, it was quickly coming up on a time for us to get ready to go take care of them, and my cousin had put off taking a test. So in order to get it done faster, she thought it would be a great idea to steal the answer book and hide it underneath the table. I mean, she was about nine or ten at the time. We'll give her a break. But what she didn't realize was is that when she went to hand in the test, her mom needed that same book to grade her answers. So she was found out, and then at that moment, all of us cousins, we got to be um, spectators in the most epic grounding I have ever witnessed. There were tears, there were slammed doors, there was a punishment. She wasn't going to be able to go see the horses that day. So there's more tears, more slammed doors, more yelling. So all of us non-grounded cousins, we got our stuff together and loaded into their Suburban we begin the long reverse trek down their gravel road, only to look up out of the front windshield to see my cousin bolting down the back deck, tumbling her way down, running as fast as she can, chasing down the car. She throws herself on the hood and said, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. <laughs> Have you ever been caught in your sin and blamed the devil? Or is it possible that the devil can actually make us do something at all? Or are there these other spiritual forces that are going around us that are influencing us? So today, I want us to think about that. Our misconception in our road trip series today is the devil made me do it. You see, there's this belief that the devil is the main reason that we sin or that he has this power over us to make us sin. So my cousin's temper tantrum that day ended in an Oscar nominee, the most awkward car ride because she in fact did get to go see the horses, and we came up to the conclusion that no, the devil actually did not make her do it. 
then what is it that causes us to sin or act out of alignment with God's expectations? James 1, 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And if he himself, and he himself tempts no one, for each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The worst part of this is that we are often our biggest enemies in the matter. It's not that we're being forced to do something against God's will, but rather we are lacking self-control. The enemy wants to tempt us with the desires that are already inside of us, those ones that are already out of alignment with God. You know, maybe it's our greed, maybe it's our lust, but we know that Satan's plan is to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and he will use us to do it to ourselves. So what do we now do about this? I believe God has called us to regulate our own actions, to our regulator actions and our response when temptation comes. He calls us to have self-control. Self-control is really just the restraint of our impulses, emotions, desires, but it's really the pursuit of saying yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. I think if we were to take that statement, the devil made me do it, and put a little bit more accurate spin on it, I think it would look something like this. The devil tried to make me do it, but God gave me self-control. We see this play out between the devil and Jesus in the desert. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. And I think that this is a great place for us to really spend our time in the text today and take a look and see how did Jesus do this. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the devil and his schemes, the example of Jesus, and the need for self-control. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we just welcome you, Lord, and we just thank you. We come to your word today with humble hearts, asking, Lord, that you would just speak to us. Lord, not my words, but your words today. Lord, that we would just come with our hearts submitted, ready to receive from you. So, God, we just invite you in. Help us to examine our own hearts, and God, help us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, it says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him 
and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So first we're going to take a look at the devil and his schemes. This passage gives us a great look at how the enemy works, doesn't it? We can look at this example and we can see similarities to other passages throughout Scripture. We see how Satan seeks to sow discord and he looks to animate evil into God's plan. How his end goal is to frustrate the will of God even if he cannot change God's will. The way Satan talks is eerily similar to the Garden of Eden. He starts by questioning what God has already said. The first thing that Satan said to Eve was, did God really say? And yet the first thing that he does here is question what God has just said to Jesus. You see, right before this passage, Jesus, before he's led into the desert, Jesus goes to the Jordan River. And at that time, John the Baptist baptizes him. And he goes down into the water. And as he comes back up, scriptures tell us that from heaven, the Father spoke and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So it's funny that God has just spoken this, and this is the first thing that Satan wants to attack. Did God really just say, if you truly are the Son of God? You see, he makes him want to question what God has already spoken to them. With Satan, there's always a deception and a a twisting of the truth. Throughout Scripture, he's called a liar, And not only a liar, but he is called a deceiver. Why? Because he is a master with a half-truth. He's the ultimate gaslighter. Hey, Jesus, there's this rumor going around that you're the son of God. If you really are the son of God, then why don't you go do these deeds? One of the most alarming things in this text is how well Satan knows God's word. The devil knows God's word. He knows how to twist it. Jesus, if you were to throw yourself down off of the temple, the word says that these angels would pick you up. But Jesus knows that this is a trap. Jesus could have done it. He could have, and he had every right to reveal himself as the son of God. But he also knows that God's word says not to test him. It's funny that Satan offers Jesus everything that he already belong, that belongs to him. Scripture tells us that all things were created by him and for him and through him, and he holds all things together. So, really, what does Satan have to offer Jesus but that which he already has or will possess? But it's funny because Jesus is vulnerable in this moment. You see, when he came and he walked among us, He was fully God, yet he was fully man as well. So the Bible tells us that he could be tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. But yet the good news is, is that he did not sin. But he could still be tempted the same way that we were. But what Satan is trying to do is offer Jesus something that is already his, something that he gave up, And it is not yet his time to possess it once again. Because the Father's will was that he would come and be among us. That he would walk just like us. So he left these things in heaven. And Satan is trying to tempt him. Don't you want these things back? Wouldn't you love to take hold of this once again? You see, Satan tries to offer us things that we already have. 
things that God has already promised to us, and he tries to make us access them early and out of God's means. We see this in the Garden of Eden where he entices Adam and Eve that if they will just eat of the fruit, then they will be like God. But they were already made in the image of God. God had called them good. And he had given them authority over everything on the earth and given them authority to rule the earth. But if you will just eat of this fruit, then you will be like God. So he doesn't have anything for us to, to offer us that we don't already have access to. But you see, if we live unaware of the devil's schemes in our life, we will be led astray through the manipulation of our own desires. We've seen this in the Garden of Eden. We see this here with Jesus. We see this back in the Old Testament with Abraham. And the story of Abraham is that God promised that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. But yet, we see through the biblical story that Abraham and Sarah arrived to an old age, an age where it should be naturally impossible to have a child. You better believe that Satan or one of his demons was there and was twisting the truth. I know God said this, but is he good enough to fulfill his promise? Or what are you going to do about it? Are you, how are you going to access this promise? Sometimes when we, the promise seems slow, we try everything in ourselves to make it come about. But yet, Satan didn't force Abraham to have an affair with Hagar. Little did they know that God was still planning to fulfill his promise. When we look at the schemes of the enemy, we need to remember this, that the devil has, does not have the same authority as God. He has his own intentions, he has his own plan, but his plans cannot conquer that of God's. The devil does not have the same power as God. He has power to manipulate, to twist. He cannot create, he cannot manufacture things, but he has the power to twist the truth. You see, where God's power is limitless, Satan's power is limited. And the devil may tempt us, but he has no power to force us to sin. Next, we look at the example of Jesus. And I think Jesus shows us how to have self-control and to resist temptation. And to be honest with you, as I prepared, as I was praying, God, what, what is the word? What do you want us to say today? What do you want us to talk about? As I looked at the temptation of Jesus, can I say I struggled a little bit? I mean, Jesus is God. Of course he's not going to sin. I mean, if he's God, he must have these supernatural abilities to say no. He doesn't have the same desires as me. But yet, this is, couldn't be further from the truth, because the scriptures say he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. But I think often, when I look at the example of Jesus, I get disheartened. Man, am I really going to be able to live this thing to the extent that he did? Even if I was given 300 years, could I live just like Jesus? But I believe that we're called to live in this tension where we have the example of Jesus, and yet we know that the Bible says that we will become perfect when the perfect comes. We live in this tension in the in-between where we are not yet perfected, but yet we are still called to pursue the same holiness that Jesus walked in. 
So hopefully that kind of helps us as we're looking at the example of Jesus. But Jesus knew that the Father and the Word, uh, he knew them well, and therefore he was able to do two things that I want to point out that I, I saw here in this text. Is that one, Jesus recognized his sonship. See, he knew God's word. God had just, the Father had spoken to him, had confirmed it at his baptism, had heard it from heaven. He knew that he was the son of God, and God had confirmed it for him. And he had an intimate enough relationship with the word that he recognized that the enemy was distorting something. Maybe he was using the same words, but yet did not have the same meaning. One theologian commented that son and daughtership is the best preparation before the trial. You see, Jesus knew who he was, the plan the Father had for him, and he knew the character that he was called to uphold in this life. As believers, I believe that we need to recognize this ourselves, that we are his sons and daughters, that we are a part of a family of God, and as being part of a family, there are now expectations that are placed on us. There is a standard that we are now to aspire to, but yet ultimately God has given us his spirit to empower us. Aren't you thankful for that today? Secondly, Jesus resisted the multiple attempts of the enemy. The enemy kept throwing bait at him. Oh, let's see if we can get Jesus on his hunger, as it says at the very beginning. All right, well, he's not going to bite at that. He's not going to turn the bread into, or he's not going to turn the stones into bread. All right, let's maybe hit him a little deeper. Let's see if we can stir up some pride. All right, no, Jesus isn't going to bite at pride either. Well, let's just dangle before him some power and dangle before him glory, the things that he left behind in heaven. All right, Jesus isn't going to bite, I guess. At a certain point, I have to believe that Satan realized that Jesus was not going to give in. So Satan decided to give up. James 4, 7 and 8 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I think that that's interesting. When we submit ourselves to God, when we resist the devil, it says that he will flee. But when he flees, it says that God will draw near as well. And we see this at the end of our passage today, where when Jesus had resisted the temptation of the enemy, God sent his angels to come and minister to him. You see, you will likely have to say no to temptation multiple times. But I think if we're being honest, sometimes it's hard to say no the first time, isn't it? Many times we find ourselves in compromised position. You know that spot where you've poured that glass of wine you know is going to push you over the edge? Maybe that hit a little close today. You know, <laughs> the website you told yourself you would never visit again. Keeping the argument going because you've stored up the best degrading comment and you've yet to be able to use it. Come on, somebody. I think we're preaching to someone today. You fill in the blank with your situation. You see, we wait for God to do a miracle after we've placed ourselves in a compromised position. Lord, I'm here. I know that I said I would never be here again. I know that this is not in your will. But, Lord, if you will just show up in lightning and thunder, then I promise I won't sin against you. 
Lord, if, if you would just show yourself, if you would speak now, then I would know that you really are here and that this sinful thing that I've set out in my heart to do, I'll step away from. So, God, we're waiting for him to rumble the heavens with lightning and thunder before we give him our, our obedience. It's like this game, this ultimate game of sin roulette. But God should not have to rumble the heavens to get obedience out of us. Jesus said no to the temptations of the enemy because God's word said, you shall not put him to the test. Jesus becomes the example for us. He believes that it's so important that this encounter that he's had, that we have to put it in context. He went through all this in the loneliness of the desert by himself. Yet we have this story here still today. He believed that this encounter was so important. It was so important for the formation of his disciples that he said, you know what? I actually need to tell you guys about this. I need you guys to understand when the devil comes for you, you need to know how to resist. He's teaching them that they have a need for self-control. And this is our last point, is that we need self-control. So, we've, so far we've talked about the schemes of the enemy. We've looked at now the example of Jesus. And lastly, we look at the need for self-control. But you see, self-control for us, it's the glue to our Christ-likeness. We can know all the right things. We can know all the things that are in God's word, but yet we can still fail to do them. There's this moment in our faith where it has to go from what we know to who we are. We have a need to pursue self-control. D.A. Carson said this, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not hesitate, do not gravitate, excuse me, toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I believe one of the greatest challenges with self-control is saying no to pleasure. Because this is our current cultural narrative. Do what feels good. Life is the pursuit of pleasure. Live it up. You only got one life to live. You see, there's this, under, this underlying belief that I need to experience the full gamut of human life because I only have one life to live. Therefore, I must try all things, and self-restraint is the thing that is holding me back from living my fullest human experience. But this belief creates a false framework for us. You see, God did not invite us to live like hell because you and I would never go there. 
I'll say that again. God did not call us to live like hell just because you and I as believers will never go there. And if I'm always in the pursuit of pleasure, then there is room, where's the room for me to die to self? We have to train ourselves in self-control. And if I can be honest with you, it's not a very pleasurable experience. It often requires us to say no to what is comfortable. It demands that we do the right things when no one is watching. It requires the little acts of obedience, even though there is an easier way out. Self-control requires us to say no, church. And this may be one of the biggest, easier said than done concepts. It's not a cool talk. You won't find many books written on it. But I believe it is something that as a church we need to remind ourselves often of. Because we're all on this journey to say yes to the spirit and to say no to the flesh. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Where are you struggling today? Where is the inner tension in you, the thing that wants to continue to say no to God? We need to understand where we are being tempted, the temptations that we have inside of us, and we need to be honest as we examine our hearts, and then I would encourage us that we need to put up some guardrails. There's some things that we're going to need to say no to. There's some things that we're going to need to take a step back. Maybe that's okay for some people, but yet it's not okay for me. Okay, maybe this is permissible, but is it pleasing? And we need to be honest as we evaluate ourselves. And can I say, one of the best things you can do is to get around a group of believers that will hold you accountable to the things of God. You need to be able to get around people to friends that trust, that, that trust you and that you trust enough that they will call you to the mat when you're not living right. You need those friends who are not scared to speak into your life because if they really love you, they don't want to see you continue to keep walking down these paths. We want to live a life uh, that is honoring, that's pleasing to God, and we want to live a life where sin has lost its power over our mind and our body. We want to take our thoughts captive. We want to be able to have enough self-control that even when there are those desires, those things that we've prayed about for years and years, you know, even as Paul says, he says, I do the things that I do not want to do, and yet, God, I don't know why these desires are in me. God is even calling us to give those unto himself as an act of submission, as a moment to say, you know what, God? I don't know why this thing is here. I prayed about this thing for years and years, but I just submit myself to you. And I'm going to make new efforts to resist the temptations so that this thing, this thing that feels like it's gripping me, that has influence over my life, I'm going to break its bond over me. Because you see, we can choose self-control or we can choose to be content with blaming the devil. But remember, the devil may have tried, but God has given you self-control, church. Amen. In closing today, I want to do something a little bit different because I know as we're talking self-control, we're talking through these, these things. Like I said earlier, we live in this tension. You know, we're, 
we want to honor God. I believe that as believers, we want to honor God in our bodies. Amen? I don't think you show up to church. I don't believe you show up to your Bible studies. You show up to groups because you're like, you know what? Let me just see how much I can anger God today. I don't think anyone's approach is that. So I think it can be easy as we hear this, um, as you hear me talk about self-control to maybe feel um, guilt or shame or any of those things. That's actually not my goal today. My goal is to encourage us and help us to enlarge our heart towards these actions that God is calling us to. And I believe that there's a, that there's a passage here I just want to read over us that I think kind of summarizes this whole thing as we navigate that tension between self-control and where does God's mercy and grace come in. And if I can, I just want to read this over you today. It's Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that a good word? Will you pray with me today? Father, we just come and we submit all this to you. God, we come and we submit our desires, both those godly and ungodly this morning. And Lord, just say, have your way. Mold us and shape us into your image today, God. Lord, let us walk out of here different than we came in. God, I ask that you would just incline our hearts to your ways today. God, give us strength to live out self-control. God, and help us to receive mercy where we fall short, Father. And Lord, in all these things, I just ask that you be glorified. Lord, because your ways are not our ways. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would make us holy. That you would make us a a spotless, a blemish-free people in your sight, God. But not because of our own efforts, but because of your loving goodness that has guided us into all holiness. So Jesus, we thank you. And we praise you for all that you're doing in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.